Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Reproducibility Podcast. Today, you have Sarah and Will. This is Sarah, in case you couldn't And this guess. is Will. <laughs> I'm coming to you from uh, traditional homelands of the, the Beata, so the ancestral homelands of the Beata and the traditional territories of the Mi'kmaq. And I'm Will, coming from Chicago, which are the traditional lands of the Peoria, Miami, Kickapoo, and Potawatomi Nation. This episode, we're going to be talking about SIPS. What does SIPS stand for? So SIPS is the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. And uh, the conference just happened and you got to go. It was a in-person conference. Or yeah, a hybrid, hybrid. Conference, But you got to go in person and I, I did. sadly had to watch from the sidelines and attend virtually. But and miss out on all the in-person uh, events, but that's okay. <laughs> I have massive fervor on my end. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go to any of the online socials? Uh, I didn't. Like, it came at a bad time, the conference for me, because I just got, like, overloaded with work. But I got to attend some of the stuff, um, some of the, some of the things, so that was cool. Yeah. How, how was the conference overall for you? The, at least the in-person bit. Yeah. Like, what, what did yeah. you experience? Like, what was, what, what was the vibes? It was really fun. I have not had this much fun at a conference in a while. SIPS is now my favorite conference to go to. It used to be a conference called SISMIS, which stands for International Conference for Students of Systematic Musicology, which is a mouthful. But essentially, it's a conference for students by students in music science. And that's why it used to be my favorite, was that the vibe was really supportive. And this is also why I liked SIPS so much. It was really a collaborative and supportive environment. And it just happens to be my more favorite now because I care more right now about the politics and the, the how and why we do science than I do about the what in this moment. So I, I really, really enjoyed going to SIPS, even just like arriving at registration, looking around being like, yeah, this yeah, feels wow. like my people. <laughs> yeah, wow. What a ringing endorsement. Right? <laughs> so... First, for some of the listeners who may be like unfamiliar with what SIPS is, perhaps we should like go from this, like go from mm-hmm. the start. Like, what is it? What what are they? What do they deal with? And things like that. So it's quite new. It started uh, not so long ago, maybe five or six years. Yeah, ago. I thought it was older than that, and I was like, oh, okay, because I was worried I was like way late to the <laughs> to the party. To the party. <laughs> yeah, and so I mean, it started. In conjunction with the, you know, the science reform movement, the open science movement, uh, which is also relatively, uh, in its mm-hmm. infancy. And so, uh, yeah, they created a conference for, um, trying to improve science, well, specifically improving psychological science, but it's trickled to other disciplines as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, and, um, it doesn't really, take the traditional conference format where you submit talks or posters and that's it they find what are the three sort of categories it's there's uh, workshops, workshops there are unconferences and there are hackathons and this is one of my favorite parts about the conference is that it's not just talks now there are flash talks and there were pre-data poster sessions at this one which was really cool um so just to give it a quick overview workshops are more standard you've probably been to a workshop before you learn a skill an unconference is essentially a, a structured discussion or less structured, depending on what the topic is. But it's a place to talk about a topic that we're all interested together to see what we can come up with. 
And then hackathons are uh, goal-oriented sessions. So here's what we want as an outcome. We're all going to come together to work on this for usually three hours. Yeah, so already from the get-go, the conference setup is trying to create initiatives or start and start discussions towards improving science reform. And anyone can bring in an issue. They just have to submit an issue of a short abstract, and they then lead those sessions. And uh, we'll talk a bit more later about um, what has come out of it. But yeah, that's sort of the motivations as to why that conference started. Mm-hmm. Some things that were brought up that came out of SIPs were like the badge system. Because improvement in psychological sciences can have many, I think, different applications. But my impression that SIPs is more concerned with open science and open scholarship in general. Right. So... I want to like sort of compare that to our traditional conferences just for a bit, just okay. to get the, give a bit of more context yeah, yeah. to the listeners. So I come from vision science. So one of the biggest conferences for us is a vision science and society meeting. And that's, it's always in the same place. It's in Florida at, at a beach. Um, so like questionable about, you know, location <laughs> a little bit because politics, but, um, and also it never moves, but the venues. So yeah, it never moves. Uh, it's sort of like, I think there's two reasons. One, uh, a lot of the researchers have families and they like the sort of beach venue. Like, there are a lot of beaches in the uh, world, though. Conducive. Yeah, sure, but I don't know. And I think the long-term like deals with the one venue might give them sort of mm-hmm. discounts and like people are used to the venue, so on and so forth. And there's like nostalgia now, like history attached to like, remember we used to eat here or there, what? Anyway, not the point. <laughs> not the point I was trying to make. Um, the I was just. It seems like the traditional conference is where you have these talks and these posters. They're great. They definitely serve a function. But I feel like societies can do more. You know, like they can do more to foster community or uplift like underrepresented populations or early career researchers, and they can also do more to sort of norm behaviors across the discipline or like signal we value this thing mm-hmm. right and i kind of at all the conferences i've been to that doesn't come across like the science communication and selecting the talks and selecting posters great awesome like we need science communication we need venues for scientists to talk to each other and have dialogues and discussion mm-hmm. um but there's also i think a place for societies like professional societies to um implement or to like sort of incentivize things that you would want to like research practices that you want to see normed or um like just sort of forward thinking about how what we want our communities to look like or how diverse our communities uh should be and yeah in my experience that the society for music perception and cognition they've started doing this more in the past couple of years i think there'll be like a plenary session about open science or about anti-racism I think that's happening this year, but it's not the focus of the entire conference. Like you say, it's more focused on the content of the research. I think it would be a cool balance, just thinking about it now, to have more flash talk type things for content of research. And then if you find something interesting, you could go talk to that person later. But that we focus our time meeting together once every year, once every two years, once every three years, depending on the conference, and focus that time on bigger picture things. Like you're saying, on on behaviors, on methodology, on our greater like theory of knowledge and how we want things to work in our field. Yeah, like where else are you going to get all the researchers in a discipline right? together? 
right? There's good, you have a good opportunity to really build consensus, which doesn't <laughs> always happen in science. Uh, not that consensus is always the goal per se, like adversarial theories and thinking is good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, like I had a similar experience and feeling from the recent conference I attended. Like I was on the panel for the open science workshop that the conference held, but we were literally like tucked away in a corner of the conference venue that like, so it was like hard to see us Mm. or get to us. Went really well advertised. And it was the, you know, the student postgrad committee that like organized that workshop, not the like, uh, you know, season, I don't know, how should I call them? Seasoned veterans of the field (laughs) (laughs) that lending credibility, um, to the, to the, you know, like saying this is important and this is necessary. Um, Anyway, this is didn't didn't come in to just bash traditional conferences. Just wanted to like <laughs> share that because that's why I think like SIPS is so cool. Because one, it not is the content, it like puts first and foremost like science reform and open science and how to improve science. And what we care about. The participants make the conference. Right. right? The issues right. that are tackled at the conference are the issues that people are bringing up. Yeah. And so we're already invested. It's it's kind of feels like it's decentralized in that way, right? No one is dictating who who can or can't go or what topics can or can't be included, right. which is, you know, there's no like actually not exactly sure how the abstracts are evaluated, but it, there's not like a metric of rigor in the same way that there is right. for a traditional yeah. conference. Right? Because it's good science. It's like we don't care. Is this an interesting question? Do we want to talk about it? Can it improve science? Yeah, I recently had to fill out I'm back to bashing conferences. I recently had to fill out the like conference feedback form and they were saying oh you know this this symposium like what was your experience and then the op it was like a likert scale a poor a terrible likert scale it was like high high scientific quality and then medium good as like or medium low as one of the options like together in one of the likert options so i was like what the and then like disappointed was the other option <laughs> and i was like uh, not the scale makes no sense how am i meant to define or evaluate quality at all like and it's like okay it seems like you're incentivized by you want to have the highest like quality but does that mean rigor or reproducibility or does that mean flashiest most entertaining science you know like the metrics were just all over the place to me and i was like what is what is this conference feedback sorry to hmm. sorry to the people who <laughs> may have made that conference uh, survey um yeah, anyway, so uh, it, it yeah, definitely feels like the the vibe with SIPs. So I've attended SIPs maybe three times virtually now. It's, it's no longer like we want to have the most flashiest science or the most sort of like the work that has the most audience, which is sometimes the vibe at the conference. Like you, especially as an early career researcher, you're pressured to like, you hope that people come by a poster to discuss your research. You don't want to just be standing in front of your poster board like with nothing to do or no one to talk about, no one to talk to your research about, which is, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but at SIPS, the vibe is like, we're, do- we're all here to try and improve science and take your ideas and try and offer something or try and, um, you know, come up with something to help or, you know, suggest our thoughts and ideas. So that alone already is... Mm-hmm makes like for me SIPs one of the like more exciting conferences to attend uh you know out of the conference cycle yeah absolutely agreed yeah that's why I love it too I mean I attended also virtually last year and I went to some of the virtual social gatherings 
and you know, it's not the same as being in person, but I think it was really well done. And I mean, it's one of the reasons I started a producibility yeah. journal club at Munns because I went. I'm just to the, realizing. I think we the, met. Like, yeah, I think table. we met. That's how we yeah. met. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah. SIPS brings the you know the people together. So and uh, like you know yeah. also fosters community and encourages you know um, yeah meeting each other. So you got to attend in person. Did you have what were your highlights of um? of the conference this year. Hmm. So I've got the schedule out in front of me. I don't know if I want to pick. It wasn't really one session that was Yeah, it's hard to highlight. pick. It's such a, such a good, I think, such yeah, a good I think it was is feeling that like things were moving and having discussions with people that also cared about this stuff. Because hmm. I'm not I'm not as used to to being around people who are as I guess concerned as I yeah, am. Yeah, right. Or as interested as I yeah. am about trying to really change things. You know, all the people that I'm around in my, for example, my lab or supervisor, like are aware of a lot of these things, but are just kind of like, well, I'm not, I don't have the time for it. I'm not really concerned about it. That's not how I do my work, whatever. So it's nice to be around people who are also just as interested, even if we disagree, which for me happened, you know, a couple of times, because of course we have different ideas about how to make change happen. And that was sort of the overall arching theme for me. I talked about this in, in the final session. I asked a question. I talked about it on TikTok. <laughs> I'll talk about it again. Maybe a different audience. Um, I started thinking a lot about theory of change. Because throughout all the sessions I went to, the discussions we were having, I was realizing that when we were bringing up differing ideas, they're only competing, but whenever we disagreed, it was usually about how we can best go about making the change that we want to see. Mm-hmm. Right? Because for some, it was have a global vision and then the details don't matter. Right. But in other cases, you could, you could certainly argue that like the details do matter. The way that you do things matters. And we talked about last time about like network, right? That, that network theory of change Mm -hmm. about changes at Mm -hmm. the fringes or the change at the Mm -hmm. center or, you know, like how, how do we go about making change? And we all have, I think, quite different ideas about how we go about making the change that we want to see. And sometimes we also disagree about what exactly our end goal is, because some might be thinking further on, or we might have different subfields. Right? We're talking about open science publication at one point, actually with the gender gap session, and they're talking about how proposed solution is double blind. I was like, okay, but if we're doing open science practices and people have uploaded preprints, then the double blind goes out the window because you immediately mm-hmm. know yes. who the person, who the author right. is. So you cannot protect anonymity. But for someone else, it was, well, there are no, like, those practices don't exist in my field, so it's absolutely possible. So, like, do you do you wait for everyone to do open science, or do you try to enforce double blindness for a while, right? Like, where's, what do you do? And so it's, I think it's a it's an interesting question to think about as to, like, how do we create that change? And, then, like, sort of what I, what I came to is I don't think we need to necessarily have one unified theory of change. I think we need to all try the thing that we believe in, and we have to attack it in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> Let's rewind back to the start <laughs> of that, which was like, yeah, how important is how important is community, right? Like, community is so important for Critical. like bringing energy to these changes. So, starting from there, like, you know, often people who are trying to change and reform science get pushed back at local institutions, right? Um, you know, even starting a reproducibility journal club uh, can be tricky because the uptake is not as 
exciting or not as successful or maybe like i don't know structural things in the department make it tough so just finding the people that are also invested in trying to improve science or trying to make a change to make things better is so valuable it's so important and i think that's one of the best things about sips that the people that attend absolutely yeah it's it's critical i wouldn't be st- trying to stay in science if i didn't think there was a community there that was interested in the things that i am yeah and so sips not only does like establish that community and brings people together now we talk now we have a chance to actually you know discuss and use different people's perspectives and experiences and expertise to try and establish a way forward right and to establish what our goals are and actually build consensus on what we're trying to do uh so um that's that all sounded really exciting like uh sure we might not always agree on what the best path forward is some people might be thinking more longer term some people might be thinking more shorter term there's there's going to be variability in how people want change to occur um but at least mm-hmm. now there's a chance to actually discuss and you know try and come together and figure out a path or a roadmap um taking in as many people's opinions and experiences uh into account and i think that's like that all sounds awesome that all sounds amazing mhm i went to a couple of sessions on ethics as well like institutional review boards which was really interesting because so i haven't had really any issues with mine but the more you do community work the more ethics boards get really difficult to deal with yeah um, so there was talk about like okay how do we how do we deal with that how do we work with our irbs more and one of the suggestions was join your irb and i was like wait a you can do that <laughs> like to me it was always just some like you know abstract yeah independent that body that was like over floating. there but like yeah, yeah, yeah they're made up of researchers and institutions like you can join your irb like oh right, right, okay right. <laughs> right and then you can have a hand in actually changing the way that they evaluate things or look at things and this person was saying that it, it it does it has made a big difference for for them being able to like be on the inside so we actually do have ways of applying more more pressure or having more power than we we think we might be able to Yeah, right. Um I think just having those dialogues and like getting those new perspectives and revealing ways that like they have not occurred to like certain attendees would have like be awesome like um for example like you joining your IRB board not something I would think to do but no if that's no. where the yeah and it also sort of like feels like that's a, like it normalizes that issue like because everyone experiences has been experiencing it across all the institutions yeah. so you sort of um you're like oh yeah we are all experiencing this thing so maybe we can all come up with a solution for it together and that sort of you know you got the division of labor and sort of and also the shared like interest in trying to fix the thing so uh rather than being like oh I'm alone feeling this uh maybe I'm just the early one who feels like this and so then nothing happens uh so that's really cool. It it brings to mind one of the workshops I attended which was uh talking about how to catalyze communities of mm. um, open science at local institutions and yeah exactly like exactly what reproducibility is trying to do. <laughs> and I'm sorry to the organizers uh but I sl- I just kept talking in that <laughs> in that workshop just because I had so much to say. It's so much to think but but i think i was spurred on because whatever i was saying people were like yeah like 
that is a problem. Like that is a problem. We've experienced that, and or oh, that's like a good idea. I was just getting constant reinforcement when typically I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and then so like for that for that workshop, was, I was suggesting you know um, you don't have to stick to a paper for paper paper discussion format. There's things like carpentry's workshops or skill kind of things or creating living documents of resources that you need, like for example, mental health wellness for grad students because that's usually not collated um or not in grad student guides at most institutions like things like that and sort of bringing vibrancy and try and energize the community but uh it was clear that like this was a common thing across multiple institutions like you kind of get an initial excitement and then at six months in people are like sort of tire out and then the journal club becomes a bit stale and so yeah tell me about how that how to like overcome that was like really useful and really interesting hmm i think it ties back to structural and systematic issues of how our workload is mm. what's expected of us right yes. that when something Very like it's really so. hard I, to to sustain anything when you are overworked and that is a a bit of systematic problem we talked about it a little bit as well right and it was like okay how do we how do we do all of this, right? Like there's, there's so much we have to be able to take care of ourselves so that we can do this work. And what often mm. feels, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, although it's, it is, it is getting better, <laughs> you know, guilty of, of wanting to do all the things because I see all the problems. I'm like, okay, I want to, I want to be involved in everything because I, I like, I see the need. Oh if I don't God. do it, who will? But it's like, you know, if you can't take care of yourself, then you're not going to be any use to anybody. So I'm getting a lot better at saying no. And as much yeah, as I want to be involved so in so many things, it's like, I don't have the capacity and I can't. Because if I can't give you everything that I want to, then to me, there's no point. Like, I'm a very all or nothing person <laughs> and I, <laughs> I can't do things. I, I can't do things halfway. Don't like it. And instead of burning myself out, you know, other people will take it on or it'll have to wait. Like, it's, there's so much going on and we have to, like you're saying, build community. And that's what's most important. Relationships. Wow. And if we focus our time on that, I think that's the best medicine. I'm also the same. Like, I can't say no to things. And I, like, try and, like, get involved in everything because I think everything's exciting. Um, but, yeah, I think one of the cool things about SIPs with these hackathons and with these unconferences is that, okay, now we all have, uh, we have a community or a group that is interested and motivated to fix something or to do, to do something. And then they can all put, get together and create something that will be useful for all of us. So then like, again, then mm -hmm. the task is not just one's own. It becomes shared. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that can kind of overcome the barriers of like too much, devoting too much to it. I mean, yes, I absolutely agree. People should be pragmatic, right. And like take care of themselves foremost because otherwise they think could go south and maybe incapable of being able to help. Mm -hmm. um, I really want to highlight FORT, so F-O-R-R-T, Framework for Open and Reproducible Research Training, who have so many amazing collaborative uh, pedagogical resources. And it's all like, it's a crowdsource. Like they have a, they have an awesome, empowering community that I've been blessed to be part of, creating like resources uh, in a collaborative manner where anyone can contribute in uh, any size or any form to create useful resources. So for example, they've created an open source glossary on open scholarship with yeah, like 250 terms of 
things that we throw around in our in our science reform movement that might make not make sense to um to someone who's just coming into the open science movement or to an early early researcher a junior researcher so that's mm-hmm. really exciting right and these kind of collaborative processes so Ford also featured ways to um, improve uh, inclusivity for um, of neurodiversity in science let me let me make sure I get this right yeah I remember there being a Ford session the only thing that I that I don't like about SIFs is how many simultaneous <laughs> sessions it's all too are. good <laughs> forced decision making I get why <laughs> There's like seven things to pick from at a time, and you're like, oh, I don't know, eight on the third day, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, eight on day two, only six on day one. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of uh, choosing. You know, on day two, I had, um, well, the hackathon that I co-hosted, and mm. it was at the very end of the schedule, so I was looking at the beginning, and I was like, oh, yeah, maybe that one, maybe that one, I'm interested in this, and then I was like, oh, yeah, never mind. <laughs> I have to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Just for me. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. How how did the hackathon that you hosted go? Yeah, it went really well. I I should be remiss if I didn't mention my own. So I co-hosted a hackathon on feminist ways of doing. And what we're doing is collecting resources um, on feminist approaches to science and discussing. Well, not discussing. Discussing. I'm bringing the clicks back, by the way. Yeah. So good. So, so good. So we're discussing how we live feminism in our everyday lives and then how we could apply that to science. And what we found is that for a lot of us, we may identify as feminists and live that in our lives in many ways, but we don't really know how to do it in science. Mm. And so we need to, to think about how that works, right? Like, what does it mean to be a feminist? And a lot of us, we talked about, well, power imbalances. Right. Right. Feminism is about power, power and equity. And so the feminist science would be about identifying and trying to rectify those those power imbalances. So it, it applies to how we ask questions, what questions we ask, who we ask them with, how we do our work, what kind of methods we use, um, even maybe where our funding comes from, depending on what that is, right? Like, do we take funding from certain organizations or do we just do government funding or you know like how, how, how what are our politics around that do we have any and like yeah how we do our analysis our interpretation what kind of lens can we can we apply like how does a feminist lens change our interpretation or analysis so we have a, a whole list of resources to look into papers podcasts websites different people who do feminist science work so that we can start to think about like in our own work how we can apply these things to the way that we do science. That's so awesome. Really exciting. And look forward to checking out that that list as well. Yeah, so. and I think it's going to be a living document, I think. We haven't discussed this exciting. yet. We haven't met since the, <laughs> the session. Um, we've just been communicating uh, via like Twitter. But yeah, we were thinking maybe a, a paper, but I think the resource list... You know, you, you mentioned living documents, and these came up in a couple of sessions that I was in, and I was like, wow, I never thought about that before, but, like, of course that makes sense. Mm. You know, these things, it was also in the, um, we talked about informal formal feedback. Yeah, promoting inclusivity in informal and professional open science contexts. And someone proposed that it be a living document, because, like, of course these practices will, will change and evolve over mm. time, because we can't prescribe as a community how to respond to something until it happens and then contexts are ever changing 
and new situations are always coming up. Right. So it has to be flexible. We have to be flexible. And I think living documents are a really great way to potentially do that. I have not yet experienced that actively, but I'm curious to see how that can pan out as a tool for community accountability. Yeah, the d- dynamic nature of a living document that can, you know, bend and change with change in contexts and environments for different and different purposes or with gains in knowledge like is exciting right it's mm-hmm. it can do so much and i just worry about the logistics of it yeah the one that, time i tried to do it is that like who people are suggesting changes but like who gets to approve those changes when do you have a discussion do you right, track changes right. you right. know and then people might not feel like they can do the change and yeah so they suggest and there's comments it's like who's ultimately in charge of all that it gets a little bit tangly that way, I think, but we can figure it out. Yeah, there's there's ways. Like if people suggest changes and they add a comment, like people can add plus one comments, like verifying or like making sure it's they like think it's great, like a good change, and then you reach a certain threshold and accept it or something. I don't know. But yeah, that's one of the other exciting things about SIPS is that so many good resources and papers and things come out from it. Like for example, your list of um, resources will be really exciting. Um, and I encourage our listeners who didn't get to go to SIPS or who haven't heard about it, just to check out the schedule, just to see what's happening. The program is uh, available on their website. And the landing pages will still be active. Yeah. I mean, whenever I come out of SIPS, and I do now, I have like 30 tabs open in my like SIPS browser. <laughs> I have a separate yeah, this, browser this window. So much going on. <laughs> All of the um, things to like read later, look at later, look into later. <laughs> I don't know when later will be, but one day. It's such a great place to share resources. Yeah, it's super inspiring. Right. Yeah. So um, the landing pages have like sort of the session notes, basically. Um, So you can sort of get a recap of what happened and what was talked about. And so um, you can see what changes or what things are people thinking about and what changes are being made and also what resources are due to come out at some point or are already out. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. really one of the, I think, one of the more exciting things to come out of SIPS too is that, yeah, you can actually, there's like a tangible content that's ha- happening. Yeah. <laughs> that's being produced, which is so cool. Like, yeah, yes. Like, scientists, you bring all the scientists together who want to improve research and they do. <laughs> they do by creating initiatives and, uh, producing, you know, helpful resources. They get the time as well to do this work because that's what they're there for. Oh, it's so good. Clearly, yeah, <laughs> both just like obsessed with this. Love it. Just, it's such a good energy, such a good vibe, and a great outcome as well. Something else I wanted to mention was the predator posters. I mentioned them really quickly, but I guess to expand a little bit on that, I think to me the super exciting thing about those is that it's essentially a registered report, but like at a conference. Mm-hmm. where you could present your idea, your design before you even collect data yeah. so that you can get the feedback like, well, what about this variable? Or did you think about that? Or what's, why this analysis? Or all those sorts of questions that like you might get when you're going through a standard review and you're like, well, I can't go back and change it. So what am I going to do about it? <laughs> so you get that feedback before you collect the data. I yes. think that's brilliant. And I, we should do this so much more at conferences. I usually present yes. work in progress at a conference or like pilot data or preliminary data. I'm, I guess, gotten very bored with like presenting end of pipeline stuff. 
I don't find that very interesting anymore. Like, what's the point really in getting feedback on something that's like done and published? Mm. It's just to, like toot your own horn and show off. Like, look what I did. It's like, just go read the paper. <laughs> like, I want, I want, I want to talk to people about stuff that's being developed that I haven't finished yet. Right. That's the most useful to me. Yeah, I, I am a big fan of the pre-reg poster. Is what I'm gonna label it. Ah, okay, yeah, okay. It just makes it makes so much sense, right? Like you get feedback in an earlier stage, which I think is one of the best things about registration, especially for early career researchers, like to get feedback at an early stage and not sort of been thrown into a situation and run an experiment and be questioning, am I doing this right? <laughs> um, so yeah, a pre-reg poster means you get that feedback and you get, you know, experts in your field to come by and sort of say, oh, have you thought about this thing? Or have you read this thing? Or have you, oh, I, I don't like this part of your design or I can see this design like or this 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 condition and you get all this amazing feedback before you've collected the data and sort of like invested invested all your like resources yeah it's almost like a point of no return yeah right because you could always I guess collect more data and do a different study again but then it's I don't know if it's a waste but like you you've used up participants time and taken information from them that you're not actually going to do anything with you know and you've told them that this is Usually in informed consent, you give like the, the benefits. And I don't know, for me, because it's such, you just listen to stuff. It's like, yes, you're benefiting science. <laughs> it's, it's a bit wishy-washy. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then if you don't even use the data and it's gone nowhere. Yeah, it is research waste. So I don't like the ethics of that. Right. For sure. And I'm going to take this a step further. Because I also agree that like, I'm, I'm calling them traditional conferences. Other conferences should really promote this. Because one, it promotes the practice of registration which I think is a good thing, at least for now in science. But also, I think there's venues for ways to connect it to registered reports, which I think is the future of science, where I'd love for a way for reviewers to come by a registration poster and then sort of sign up to say, I will be your review or your referee on a registered report. And then you can go through that stage. Um, sure, there's dynamics that I haven't totally thought through yet by knowing who the reviewers are, like not blinding <laughs> that process. Yeah. But, I mean, you can imagine this encourages the registered report format, which to me is much more rigorous than uh, our current process where we run the experiment and then put that out. Yeah. I think it's so much less wasteful. It's so much more, I guess, efficient, and I don't like really that word. I don't think it's necessary, but in this context, I think that's the best way to describe it, <laughs> that it's it's a more efficient use of our resources. Right. Uh, and it's also potentially more collaborative. You can get bring people on who mm-hmm. have expertise or who, are, who think it's a cool idea. Yeah, because why not all just get more publications? Like, it's already, you know, you don't lose anything by having another name on your paper. Ugh. We can... I think... I think I, wait, I think... <laughs> that's a whole discussion. I mean... I have many thoughts on this, and I think we're lined up to talk about this in future. So plugging future podcast episodes, I think we want to talk yes. about um, contributorship and credit, uh, mm-hmm. which is yeah, um, yeah. which I believe is a much more equitable and um, find the right word here, equitable and useful, useful way um, sure. to um, incentivize research and like recognize research. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, and that's for later. <laughs> I I was thinking as we were talking about the open peer review process, what also came up in some of the discussions was whether or not anonymity helps 
get rid of bias. And some of the assumptions were that, well, if people know the names of the authors and names of the viewers, then they will be biased. But if they are anonymous, then they will not be biased. And I'm not convinced by that. Right. I think that as long as the bias is protected by anonymity, it can't be called out and it will continue. Yeah. Right. So it's not like keep everything anonymous until the bias disappears. It, it won't unless it's being systematically pointed out. Right. And rectified, which requires open reviewing. And to me, initially, so my gut instinct, as someone who has sort of thought about it, but not really. Um, so don't take any of these current words that are coming out of my mouth with any weight whatsoever. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so like, I think making reviews anonymous deal with maybe a certain set of biases, right? Um, sure, it's like people are afraid, for example, seeing someone's institution or someone's name, that there'll be like implicit biases, I suppose. Um, and making it anonymous is meant to avoid this, but there's going to be other types of biases that go into the actual review that aren't from that. So what are we going to do about those biases as well? Yeah, I just don't think anonymity is the best way forward. Like, yeah, I'm a big fan. I think open peer review is good. I think my idea, I think I tweeted this recently. My ideal would be like some sort of double blind, um, review set between the action editor and the reviewers and but then you unmask the review at publishing so you get the benefits of Mm. like the signed review meaning people will put their name to it which i think counts for a lot uh like because it i think we need to generate kindness in science like you can be critical without being destructive so Mm -hmm. um putting your name to your review and attesting that you've tried to be constructive and, you know, try to address any biases that you may have, I think is way more powerful than hiding behind it in, with anonymity. Mm-hmm. This is me just ranting about stuff. Just, yeah. The types of biases I'm thinking about that were brought up as well are things like a woman of color who's doing oh, yes. work on other people of color. They will be called out for like, oh, you didn't have a white control group. Or like, oh, they'll be like, just, oh, you, you know, your English isn't good enough. Or like, I speak, like, English is the first language. What? But immediately because the name looks born a university is in a non-white country, right. then those assumptions are, and like, if, if the reviewer is masked throughout the whole process, that won't be called out. Right. Until it's too late. And the, the paper might not even ever be published because that's yeah. being blocked. So we need some sort of mechanism to identify these these biases. So I don't know if that's the role of the editor. I, I think it should be. I don't think the onus should be all on the authors to defend themselves. I think they've done enough work right. <laughs> and get enough shit that they don't need to do that extra labor of like defending their work, which is perfectly i'm sure sound i mean there, there might be other issues with it but like it, it can't be an issue that just because you know it's by someone developing was considered a developing country that it's inherently bad because this person some of these people were saying also like they've seen work published by white people done in the same community right but they have so much trouble publishing their work and it's like that is not okay right absolutely not so okay. how do we avoid that yeah and i also think we do want to know the people who are doing the work to offset these biases right like we do want to recognize them and at some point so knowing the people who are 
contributing constructively to these kind of things is important. I mean, yeah, there's a lot to talk about in that in that space. But I mean, for our listeners, can you see how much interesting, exciting things are going on <laughs> at SIPS? Like we haven't even like yeah. there's so many things that I haven't even brought up yet. Like um, there's ERP methodology apps, like they're trying to make like methods just like fully trans uh, fully transparent. Like that's exciting. Uh, there's the like reversals collection. I think that's also a Fort project. Fort amazing. Also go check them out. Um, amazing community, amazing initiatives. But yeah, so they're collecting a, a I think a list of replications and reversals. So like seeing like what has reversed, which is you know interesting and exciting. Yeah, so many like inclusivity sort of initiatives, which I think there should be way more in uh, science and academia. Oh, so many, so many things. So, so many things. So it's so exciting. Did you have any things you wanted to add on? I was just going to plug that next year it's happening in Padua, Italy. Yeah. <laughs> and, pro- and online hybrid. Mm-hmm. I think I speak for both of us and I say we highly encourage you to attend SIPS. Yeah. In future years, either submit something of your own or come and attend and take part in all of the exciting projects that are happening. It'll be different every year. Yeah. I, I promise you that you won't regret it. Like you will meet an empowering community who will support you and you'll see exciting change that I think will be extremely inspiring. So I suppose we should sign off. Where can we find you, Sarah? I'm on Twitter at Sarah underscore Sobe. And I am on Twitter at Will underscore Nyan. Side point back to having a pronounceable last name, also a bias that happens inside. So that's not mentioned a lot. Um, anyway, that's to say, we've got many exciting podcast episodes coming up. So hope you check those out. And of course, if you'd like to learn more about starting a open science community at your institution, go check out uh, our website at reproducibility.org. All right. See you next time. Bye, everyone. you listen to reproducibility season 2 episode 5 sips 2 improving psychological science boogaloo your hosts this episode were sarah soway and william nia who are also on twitter at sarah underscore soway and at will underscore nia this episode was produced by sarah soway and edited by sarah soway and jan vornhagen for more information about SIPS, go to improvingpsych.org, not sips.org, that's easy to confuse. For more information on the podcast and how to start your own journal club, visit reproducibility.org. Thanks for listening.